Let's jump in today with a map. Uh, how many map nerds do we have in the room? I love maps. Mark, you're going to be with me. I just want to show you something I learned this week about the state of Virginia. Virginia was the first um, colony to be granted. Uh, the, Virginia was the first place to be granted a charter uh, by uh, the King of England. And it was granted its charter in 1606. And uh, you'll kind of see it here. Original Virginia went from 29 degrees to 41 degrees latitude, if I remember my proper terms. This is longitude, this is latitude, right? And so it went from 29 to 41. If that is not helpful for you because you're not a cartographer, that means that original Virginia was from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, everything from the Daytona Beach to uh, the Jersey Shore. Now, I have a friend who is insanely Bostonian, and he truly believes that everything south of the Hudson River is Alabama. So if I ever ask him, like, well, where is that? He goes, oh, it's Alabama. And Alabama for him, it's Kevin Miranda, uh, Alabama literally could be anything. It could be Pennsylvania. Alabama could be Delaware. Alabama could be Georgia. Alabama could be Texas. It's all Alabama to him. In the original charter for the New World, literally everything from south of the Hudson River all the way down to Daytona Beach was Virginia. Like, that's how it was. Uh, but a few things began to happen. In 1632, if you'll go to the next map, uh, Maryland was given its royal charter. And everything on the north side of the Potomac River was to become the Maryland colony. And so for the first time, Virginia began to have to give away its boundaries. And so everything south was now Virginia. So Virginia was essentially everything from Daytona Beach up to the Potomac River, Atlantic to Pacific. 1663, uh, just 31 years later, every, the Carolinas were established. So everything from the Albemarle Sound, I hope I'm saying that correctly, everything from the Albemarle Sound north was now Virginia, and everything south of that was now going to be the Carolinas. Just two years later, we don't have a map for this one, two years later, they ticked it one half a degree north, and Virginia lost some more of its land. Uh, and by the way, there was a bad, when they surveyed it, there was a bad corner, bad surveying work done over here on the western side. Uh, so that they actually, once they realized what was going on with the surveying, they even lost five more miles. So now Virginia is even closing in a little more. They never actually owned the Pacific. Everything uh, to the west of the Mississippi River, they came to find out, was owned by Spain and France. And so then you fast forward. 100 years to after the Revolutionary War, and this is the fourth map. Uh, go back one map, if you will, I believe. Nope, you got it right. I'm sorry. I got, I got mixed up. They donated everything on this side to Kentucky to pay off uh, that became Kentucky. They donated it to the government and gave away uh, everything on the other side of the Ohio River uh, to help pay for war debts. And then the Continental Congress decided just a little bit after the war that they were claiming Pittsburgh sort of Pittsburgh was in the murky boundary, and the Continental Congress came in and said, nope, that's not yours either. So the government took Pittsburgh from poor Virginia and all of western Pennsylvania, and that became that. And then in 1861, uh, West Virginia decided that in the uh, Civil War, they were going to be part of the Union, and Virginia was obviously part of the Confederacy. And so they split the two states. One went with the North, one went with the South. And, um, and West Virginia was no longer part of Virginia. And even like for the real map nerds, I don't know if you can see this. I don't know that I can jump into it without messing everything up. But here, I'm going to do my basketball move. You ready? Right here, that line. 
Those three counties were actually part of old Virginia, original Virginia, and the government, because um, Virginia went and, would, and seceded, said, you know what, we're going to take three of your counties away. So the last land grab uh, that Virginia had happened to them was after the war, and those three counties up on that weird, crooked little hook on the top of West Virginia, became, or, uh, they became part of West Virginia and not part of Virginia. Now, here's what I want to tell you, and why are we talking about the maps of Virginia this morning? Salvation and life in Christ and the gospel are broad and generous. Salvation and life in Christ and the gospel are broad and generous. In fact, let me read to you from the NIV this morning. Usually we read from the ESV, and all the other verses we'll read from in the Bible this morning will be from the ESV. But I want to read you these two verses from the NIV, because I like the way they translate a little better this morning, from Psalm 16. If you'll throw up that verse, ladies. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6 say this. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. What a great declaration. You hold my lot. Now, this is the part I really like. If you'll go to the next one. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have a beautiful, the lines have fallen. And the NIV says, I thought I'd given him the NIV, but that's my bad. The, it, in the NIV, it says, you have given me spacious boundary lines. The gospel, the Christian life, life in Christ are broad and generous, but we can enslave ourselves and tighten our borders and seed land in sin and relationships and overworking and gospel immaturity and, and in stagnating in our faith and especially death. Like Virginia lost its land over and over and became eventually the little state it is now, every time that we begin to live outside of God's best for our lives, we're seeding land. The gospel gives us broad boundary lines, sin, debt, overworking, broken relationships, take the land away that God literally intended for us to have in Christ. So we're in week two of this Money Matters series, and today if we have a title, it's that debt matters. Now I want us to recall the gospel story. Thank you for going ahead and putting that up. It's amazing. Last week we shared that the gospel... And I don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't mean like in, in New England a lot of times when we say gospel, they mean like the sermon. The gospel is the big story of God's work in human history. The gospel is also the small story of Jesus redeeming humanity. But I want to talk about the big story this morning. Remember, the big story is that God made everything. God made the universe. And he said that it was good. And it even reflected something of who he was, Right. But people sinned. So we start with creation. The next part of the gospel is the fall. We live in the wake of the fall that Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit in unbelief and, um, and, and they began to experience the fall. Now, here's something we didn't talk about last week with the fall. In the wake of the fall, if you read the Old Testament, everything from Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve originally sinned up until Jesus comes at the beginning of the New Testament, people live... There's this constant narrative in the fall of slavery. And so God's people are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and later they're enslaved in Babylon. When they're in between those two times of being enslaved, they're actually enslaving others in their unbelief. And then finally, Jesus is born into an era where they're not enslaved by Rome, but they're living under, God's people are living under the authority of Rome. And so... 
creation, fall, the third part of the gospel story is rescue. That Jesus, uh, because we can't work our way to God, God works his way to us in the person of Christ. And so he comes to rescue us and he dies on the cross to give us forgiveness of sins and relationship with God. There was so much slavery in that couple of thousand year reign of just fall before rescue. There was so much slavery that people thought Jesus was going to be a political liberator. Jesus had bigger aims. He wasn't coming to free them from political slavery. He was coming to free us from spiritual slavery. And now we live in this next part. If, if you're a Christ follower, we live in the era uh, between rescue and restoration. God is restoring us in Christ. It's not that we don't deal with all of those things, but we find ourselves in the middle of this narrative. This narrative is playing out in everyone's life. This narrative is playing out in every church. This narrative is playing out in every community. And this narrative is playing out in all of creation and all of time. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration, and slavery, bondage, and debt. Those things are the fruit of the fall. When we have debt or we're enslaved, that's the fruit of the fall. That's a pre-rescue situation, okay? And so while Christ followers live between rescue and redemption, when we see debt in our life, when we see human trafficking, or when we see human slavery, we need to understand that that is not where we are in the narrative. And I read this week that the average American, not counting their mortgage, has $92,000 worth of debt. And I think statistically, Christians aren't much different. Barb, like, almost had a seizure right down here hearing that, right? Like, Christians aren't much different statistically. Debt like that is a fall issue and not where we're made to live in the generous boundary lines of rescue and restoration. And so what does all this have to do with debt and budgeting? Let me share four scripture passages with you. They're in the notes. You won't be able to follow along with them just because I'm going to kind of blow through them. But I want you to see, and I just picked four verses where the Bible's talking about freedom, debt, uh, saving, stewarding, all those things. We could find uh, verses about financial stuff and debt and stewardship almost throughout all of scripture. But I just picked five verses this morning I want to share with you. Galatians 5.1 is one of my life verses. Uh, it says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. I memorized it in a different translation, but I think that's pretty close to it. What does that mean? It means that Jesus didn't save us to go to church and just give money and be religious. It doesn't mean that Jesus saved us to have to do anything. It means that Jesus saved us to be free. And our inclination is to enslave ourselves because we still live under the flesh and the flesh is tethered to the fall. But we were made to live in rescue and redemption. And rescue and restoration is a land of freedom. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You have to stand firm on that. The next scripture I want to share with you is Proverbs 22, verse 7. Let me get over to that one. 22.7 says, um, The rich rules over the poor. And the borrower is a slave to a lender. That's fall language. Do you see that? That's fall language. The borrower is the slave to the lender. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Let me read you Romans 13, 7 through 8, if I might. Kind of a controversial verse, by the way, are these two verses. 13, 7, and 8. Pay to all what is owned to them. Pay to all what is owed to them. 
Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Do you see that it's talking not just about finances, but it's also talking about our sort of relational accounts that we're to honor and love and keep full accounts with people? But verse 8 says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owe no debt to anyone except the debt to love. What a powerful idea. And then let me read to you Proverbs 21, verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The plans of a diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. We were made for freedom. We were saved for freedom. But we are ruled over and enslaved like Virginia every time we take on a debt. Every time we take on another debt, it's literally like Virginia losing its land. It's exactly what it's like. It's amazing. But it's not about... It's, it, it, life is relationships and rescue and restoration and freedom. And so the, the only debt that God would have us owe, it's not that we don't have debts. Listen, I have debts. Today I have to preach almost from my head because there's some things I haven't mastered in this. Uh, so I just want to tell us what the Bible and the gospel tells us. It's not about uh, money always first, but it is about money and we are to love. And then from that last verse, we're to have a plan. Having a plan in place will protect us from enslaving ourselves accidentally. The bent of our culture is toward debt. We are a a dangerously indebted nation full of dangerously indebted states made up of dangerously indebted people. So the bent of our culture, the gravity leans us toward debt. And we've got to get uh, aligned with God. So... For humans generally, this is the big idea today. If there's a big idea for those of you who like to take one note, here's the one note today. Um, I think we got a slide for this one if you guys wouldn't mind going to it. Debt steals our territory that is meant to be ruled by our good King Jesus. Debt steals the territory like Virginia that is made to be ruled by our good King Jesus. Debt steals our rights, debt steals our peace. And debt steals our resources that are meant to be under the sovereign rule of our good King Jesus. Now, I want to give you five principles on debt, if I might. And again, these are all in the notes because we don't have slides for each of these. I'm going to try to move through them fairly quickly, but I want to share them with you. Okay, one, a lot of Sundays, I have to make sure that I say, let me tell you what I didn't say. All right, this one, hear what I'm about to not say, okay? Like, I don't want you to walk out of here and hear, JD said, if I have a credit card, I'm going to hell. I didn't, I'm not saying that, all right? I am N-O-T, not saying that, all right? These are the biblical principles I want to share with you about debt. One, the Bible does not say that debt is a sin. Let me just make sure we all get it. If you're in Facebook, type it in there. If you're in here, I'm going to say it again, and I want you to repeat it with me. The Bible does not say that debt is a sin. Are you ready? Here we go together. One, two, three. The Bible does not say that debt is a sin. Okay? We good? Everybody thumbs up? We're good? All right. The Bible does not say that debt is a sin. There come a medical emergency. There comes layoffs. There comes buying a home in Boston. Uh, There comes your kids' needs. There comes pandemic. Listen, in my house, we own our home. I'm not in sin because I bought a house and can't pay what we had to pay to buy the house. 
That's not a sin. The Bible does not say that debt is a sin. All right? We good. Good. All right. Second biblical principle on debt. The Bible does, the Bible does say um, that debt is unwise. The Bible does say that debt is unwise. Debt, the Bible says over and over, debt has consequences. It does. Uh, Every month, I like to look at my mortgage statement. And what I'm paying the bank right now in interest, I'm not even paying, I'm paying like 85 cents a month on my house. And the rest is just interest and taxes. You know what I mean? That's a consequence. I'm going to spend years paying 85 cents for my house and like thousands of dollars on interest. That's a consequence, right, of debt. It just is, right? Debt has consequences. But I also want to share this in light of the fact that the Bible does say that debt is unwise. There are kind of two approaches to money right now. I'm a big Dave Ramsey financial peace believer. Like, I've never been to that stuff, but I really do believe in it. It's, in fact, we put some books up here each week, and we put them in the list of things we believe. I'm a big believer. There's another line of thinking right now on debt that says, essentially, you borrow against your debt to leverage your debt to make money. I hate this. I, I will be honest with you. I know that I'm going to be really honest. There are people in our church who believe that that is a sound financial strategy, and it may be sound by the world's standards, but is a, an unbiblical strategy. That is an unbiblical approach to debt. Debt is unwise throughout the course of Scripture. Debt is a fall issue, not a rescue restoration issue. Third thing about debt in the Bible. The Bible does not say that God will bail us out of our debt. I've heard people quote that verse in Philippians 4. It says, my God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's not what it means. God might bless me, but I need not, I can't count on that because debt is a fall issue. And oftentimes God doesn't erase our consequences of bad financial decisions or bad whatevers that we do. Oftentimes, he wants us to get the muscles that he has created us to get. And that happens through discipline and the ache of doing unbiblical things. Sometimes God just lets us live with the consequences. I wish that becoming a Christian meant that like the, the, the sin debt against God is erased in Christ, but the consequences of the sin debt we, some, we, we usually have to continue to live with um, as a way to grow our faith and to get some faith muscles. The fourth thing that the Bible says about debt, Bible calls us to worship the creator, to die daily, and to take an eternal view when it comes to our money. Our culture hyper fixates like on money. Following Christ, the Lord has called us to fix our our gaze on the creator, not the created. Worship, uh, money matters because money is a worship matter. And so we've got to decide where we're going to fix our gaze. And if we fix our gaze on the creator and we follow Christ, then we have to die daily and take a long view when it comes to everything, especially our finances. And then fifth, the Bible says lenders are masters. The odds are in their favor. May the, well, like, isn't that a line from the Hunger Games? May the odds be for like be in your face. Like, listen, finances are the Hunger Games, and uh, and man, like the odds are in the favor of the lender, and they become your master. Biblically, the Bible tells us that over and over, the odds are in their favor. They have the leverage. 
Oh, and let me just give you a freebie. And this is in the notes also. Lending to or borrowing from your family and friends changes that relationship. I don't know if any of you have ever had family ask you for money or you've ever been in a position where you had to ask family for money. What it does, because the Bible says that debt makes us slaves, what it does is it takes a family relationship or a friendship and turns it into a slave and master relationship. And you might navigate through that and the debt get paid off, but why invite that chaos into family? Why invite that into family? So be wise about that. Uh, next part, biblical principles on financial freedom. We've talked about debt. Let's talk about the flip side. Like, let's get to some good news. Uh, first one, the Bible says that God owns it all. God owns it all. Everything that's sitting in this today is owned by the Lord Jesus. He owns it all. If you go to my house, it's not my house. It's the Lord's house. If you go to my car, it's not my car. It's the Lord's car. And so I am to be a manager or a steward. So we don't have a finance team at Christ Church Charlestown. We have a stewardship team. Because we are not owners of our finances. We are managers of God's finances. So at the end today at the family meeting, we're going to talk about where we are financially as a church. Our church doesn't own that money. That's God's money. And we are to be managers because God is the owner. The second principle in financial freedom, the Bible says, and Jesus promises, that God knows and meets our needs. There's a few passages in the Bible that make me go like this. <sighs> Just make my shoulders relax. One of them is in Matthew 6 when Jesus is talking about finances. And he says, man, you want to know if God's going to look after you? He says, look at, the, look at the little sparrows and look at the wildflowers out in the field. Nobody even planted those. But he says, I've never seen a sparrow that looks like food starved. And I've never seen a wildflower that was poorly dressed. If God looks after the lowliest sparrows and the most mundane wildflowers, won't he look after you, you of little faith? And he says, but seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows your needs and will meet our most basic needs. Third biblical principle on financial freedom. The Bible calls us financially to live in today. Live like, uh, so we're called to live in today, die daily. Live by faith. We're called to do that. Uh, the second part of that, we're also to live like we'll live to 100 or 104 or 114 or whatever the number is right now. The oldest woman in America, I just read this week, is 114 years old, and she was giving her tips this week on how to live to be 114. Uh, we need to take care of ourselves like we'll just live today. We also need to take care of ourselves like we'll live to be 100. Uh, and that would include like having insurance and retirement and investing for our kids and all that stuff. And we also need to live with eternity in mind. So we essentially need to live on three time frames. We need to live like we might die today. We need to live like we might live to 100. And we need to live like we will definitely live for eternity. The people who can do those things well and align their finances accordingly are geniuses. And they're the most peaceful people I know. The ones who understand that God is the owner and they are the managers and they can live on those three planes. Uh, two more things I'll tell you about um, financial freedom. The Bible says that our materialistic, unsatisfied culture conspires against your freedom. Culture conspires against your freedom. Uh, I love watching television and watching commercials. If you watch Nickelodeon, it's like all cereal and sugar commercials. If you watch uh, any show in the middle of the day, it's all commercials about 
how to make sure if you're getting older that like you're not going to fall and not be able to get up. Like it's like that's all the if you watch ESPN for whatever reason, man, ESPN's all commercials about how to look better and what pills you need to take. Like I am anticipating in like three years the commercial that says, "Were you affected by the pandemic of 2021? Like, do you like this mask wearing stuff? Like, what is this going to do?" Listen, our commercials are selling us a lifestyle. The gospel is also selling us a lifestyle, and we've got to pick which narrative we are going to believe. But it is pretty well almost impossible. You cannot live a fall narrative calling you to materialism and debt while also living a freedom narrative of free life in Christ. You got, we have to pick. This is a conclusion that Nat and I have come to in the last few months is we have to pick which narrative is going to win. Like we, for a long time in our finances, tried to live like straddling both sides of the fence. And ultimately you can't. And ultimately we realized we wanted to align where the Lord was because where the Lord is, there's freedom. And so finally, God, the Bible says that God's good goal for your life is freedom, resulting in joy and generosity. God wants you to be free. That is not the narrative of religion. Religion wants you to be a slave. Relationship with Christ offers us freedom in Christ, and freedom always results in joy and generosity. So I think we have a slide for this one, uh, Hope and Ari. The goal, I want to tell you, is not to move from debt slavery to stuff slavery. The goal is freedom in Christ. So the narrative of our culture is going to be to have debt, lots of debt. Bryn's running laps. I love it. Annie's chasing her. This is awesome. It's the greatest church service ever. We became Baptocostal. Bryn's running laps in church. Amazing. It's not bothering me at all, and I'm pretty sure it's not bothering anybody. I love watching it. Um, she's all good. So our culture would say, you need to be a slave to debt. Our, the materialistic end of our culture would say, you get free of debt slavery, and you become a stuff slave. The gospel says you're not made to be a slave to anyone. You are made to be free in Christ. So the goal is not for the church or Dave Ramsey or anybody else tell you you need to move from debt slavery to then just complete anarchy. You can do whatever you want. You can become a slave to stuff. I know people who are slaves to their stuff more than they were slaves to their debt. The goal is freedom in Christ Debt steals your territory like Virginia that was meant to be ruled by the good King Jesus. So I'm going to give you a couple of pieces of practical wisdom. Uh, some of it I, my granddad beat into me and my mom beat into me as a kid. Some of it's like so deeply personal that it's non-negotiable. Some of it we are learning and have learned even in the last couple of years. And in some of this I'm about to tell you we still have a ways to go on. Okay, so I'm not preaching at you today like Natalie and I are literally wrestling through what I'm about to tell you. But there's three evictions that have got to happen in your life. All right. You ready for me to tell you who you got to kick out? The first person you got to kick out of your life is the creditors. To get to a biblical spot on finances, you've got to kick out the creditors. You've got to begin to finance almost nothing. Finance almost nothing. If you can live without it, live without it. If you can like sit with it for 48 hours or 24 seconds and go, you know what, I don't have to have that, 
Kick the creditors out of your life. Finance almost nothing. Take your credit cards and put them in the drawer in the house. And just don't use them unless you absolutely have to. And I don't mean like the drawer that's empty, like Nikki keeps a really clean house, not any of Nikki's drawers. I mean that drawer in your house where you put everything from batteries to like your kids have slipped to use Band-Aid into. There's markers, like you open it and stuff like comes out like those little jars where the snakes pop out of them, you know, or like a jack-in-the-box. Put your credit card in that drawer. Like as best you can, let that thing get lost. It's not that debt and credit are a sin. They're just come with consequences. So put your credit cards away, evict the creditors, practice what Dave Ramsey calls the debt snowball. If you don't know what that is, it's on the PDF of the resource pages. And, and then just practice pausing before buying. If you can wait 24 hours, wait 24 hours. If you, like, if you can wait three days, wait three days. Give yourself, the, the more it costs, the longer the pause should be. And think about every car lot you've ever been to. What's their shtick? It's to try to get you to buy right then. Do the opposite. If a creditor wants you to buy right then, then build in the practice of waiting a little bit longer. And the biggest thing I would tell you on evicting the creditors is we've got to begin as a culture, but especially as God's people, to hate debt more than we hate debt's consequences. Most of us hate debt's consequences. Oh, I can't go on vacation. Oh, I can't afford to buy this right now. This feels terrible. We just don't necessarily hate our debt. We hate how it feels to have debt. But to get the creditors out of your life, you've got to actually hate the debt and, and get rid of it more than you just hate debt's consequences. Second eviction that's got to happen. You've got to evict the Murphys. I grew up in a house where we lived under Murphy's Law. If it could go wrong, it always did go wrong. That's Murphy's Law. Remember that one? If it can go wrong, it does. When you are strapped financially and you're thin and you're living under the weight of debt, Murphy's Law will seem to happen to you with more regularity than when you have no debt and you are in a good spot. So to evict the Murphys, I would encourage you, again, on the PDF, save $1,000 as fast as possible for an emergency fund. Um, put, uh, have a monthly shared budget, like a paper budget that you can look at as best you can. This is how you begin to cut corners and cheat your budget. Eliminate debt. Work Murphy's Law out of being a possibility. In our home, uh, I still have my credit card in my wallet, actually, but I put it in the very back. It sits in the back. It's the, like I have to dig in to get to it. We use our debit cards in the front. We use it more, but we actually have gone to being a cash family as best we can. And when the cash is gone, we don't spend anymore. We use our debit card less than we ever have. And we, for the first time this month, we had absolutely not one thing on our credit card statement. I saw, I opened it the other day. I was ready to pay it. And it said zero. And I literally almost started speaking in tongues. I was like, praise you, Father. I mean, we pray that thing. We pay it off every month. Uh, and we were using it for miles, and we were like, forget these stupid miles. It's not helping us that much to get the miles. We weren't using it enough to really accrue anything. I know that some people do, and they pay it off every month. It really wasn't helping us. It wasn't serving a purpose. So we've moved to credit card last, debit middle, cash first. And that is helping us run the Murphys out of our life. And we're new to it. Like, we're not masters of this, okay? I'm speaking to you as someone who's trying to get free. And then the third eviction, evict the Joneses. Evict the Joneses. Evict them. 
uh, get them out of your life. The idea that you have to keep up with anybody is ridiculous. Free people with lots of territory aren't trying to keep up with anybody. They're living their best life. So Dave Ramsey says over and over, live like no one else today so you can live like no one else later. Quit worrying about what everybody else is doing. Remember, this may be the most powerful thing you hear today. Remember the people on Instagram who are living their best life have never posted their bills. The people on Instagram who are posting these beautiful photos, they have never posted a photo of their credit card statement. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. The people who seem like they are living the most amazing life uh, on vacation have never posted a photo of them coming home for their vacation and figuring out what they spent on that vacation. They've never posted that picture, that anxious picture of how are we going to do this. Most Joneses spend money that they don't have to impress people they don't really care about. Evict those jokers from your life. Get them out of your life. Please the Lord and please the people who matter. Money problems are worship problems. I'm going to share the big idea with you one last time and then we'll pray. Debt will steal your territory that was meant to be ruled by our good King Jesus. Debt is intended to take something from you that God sent his son to die for, to give to you, uh, and allow you to live in freedom. What if, let's just dream for a second. I think dreaming helps me tackle difficult things. What if in 10 years you had no debt in your house? No debt. How would you, would you breathe differently? What if in our church in 10 years, we collectively had no debt? How could we invest in this community differently on a greater level if we had no debt? How could we plant churches and extend the Great Commission and go and bless people in other parts of the world that are less fortunate than us? How can we tell, and this is the best news, how can we tell the rescue and restoration story well if we have no debt? Because that's why we want to get out from under debt, is not just to be free people, but to also help free people. You know, there's that statement, hurt people hurt people. Free people are able to help free people. And God wants us to be part of a liberation story. And that, I think, is the most compelling meta-narrative of why we want to be debt-free as people and as a church. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. And I thank you that our marriages are saying something of the gospel. Our dating says something of the gospel. Our finances say something of the gospel. How we work says something of the gospel. And the gospel story, creation, fall, rescue, restoration. We were made to live as free people. Jesus, you died so we would be enslaved to no one. Help us, Lord. We don't have to repent of our debt per se because debt is not a sin. But God, we do want to square it up and frame it up in the gospel narrative. Lord, would you help us to stop giving away what was meant to be territory ruled by the good King Jesus. Lord, for the one who is here, God, uh, and doesn't have relationship with Christ or maybe watching on Facebook Live and doesn't have relationship with Christ, their greatest need is not to square up their financial debts. Their greatest need is to square up their spiritual debt. And so, Lord, if there are people who've never begun a relationship with you, they live kind of in that fall uh, space, but they've not, uh, they're not certain about the fact that they've been rescued by Christ's death. They can mentally accept that Jesus died for them, but they've never invited Christ into their life. 
Lord, I pray that even today they would turn from their sin, trust the death of Jesus, and ask you to begin a relationship with them. And that they would then turn their backs on everything that they've been, good and bad, and be all in with following Christ. For all of us, Lord, I pray that we would enter into this story, God. Think about how the the world could be different if we aligned with you as it concerns our debt. God, forget what our privileged nation could do. And let's just talk about the people of God. If the people of God in this country and in our world were completely debt-free, God, how could we tell that rescue and restoration story well? Lord, Christ Church Charlestown, help our people to do discipleship work of getting out of debt so that we can tell a beautiful rescue and restoration story. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.